<clears throat> good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. Book of Acts, chapter 9 this morning. We will stand and read in one moment, verses 19 through 31. The book of Acts, chapter 9. <clears throat> How come I don't hear pages from Is everybody electronic? Anyway, would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Beginning at verse 19 through verse 31. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Please be seated. Twice in just a couple of paragraphs, they sought to kill this man His conversion equals a gain to the people of God and a loss to Satan. He is an awakened tiger. Satan doesn't know that to what extent this man is going to impact the church, nor do the Christians, nor does Saul. The only person that knows at this point is God. This book of Acts is so rich with helpful information about how the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of the first Christians. The question may then arise, are we too occupied with our troubles, with our problems in life, with our quests, to avail ourselves of these lessons that have been preserved by God himself? That's why we have a book of Acts. God said, I want this to be preserved. I want future generations to read these things, to be edified, built up by them. So the record is here as a template for Christianity and, of course, the Christians within Christianity. 
I say that because I, I feel that many Christians and churches do not take advantage of this resource known as the book of Acts. There's so much here. Now, Bible study is not enough. Never is by itself. To know a fact does not mean that you understand the implications of the fact. And that requires, of course, God. But it, that does not undervalue the Bible study. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And, of course, as I just mentioned, this word is preserved to make us stronger. But we must, we must depend on the Holy Spirit, which I fear some Christians are afraid of the Holy Spirit because of the abuses by some within Christendom. Anyway, this keeps us all dependent on the Spirit of God in our devotions and our study time and the services and in our walk. And we should be better because of it. You say, well, I do avail myself as best I can, and I don't feel like I'm making any progress. Well, the question would be to you then, where would you be if you were not doing those things? Would you be worse off? I think the answer would be yes. So we're not rushing through this book. It is, uh, it is a gem for us. And looking now at verse 19 again. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, he's still at the house of Judas, according to verse 11. Presumably, Judas was a believer. And, of course, Paul was baptized and then baptized in the Spirit. And he had fasted for three days as he tarried there. And uh, he didn't stay long in Damascus at this point. Again, Satan doesn't know that this man is going to be a tiger for Christ, and neither does Ananias, who went there to baptize him and lay his hands on him, refer to him those first sweet words, Brother Saul. I believe, and I'm not alone, that there is an interval between that first sentence in verse 19 and the second sentence of a substantial amount of time. If you don't factor in what Paul has to say about his conversion in Galatians, then you just keep reading on in this chapter as though he was baptized and then he got up and he went preaching right away. And I don't think that is reasonable, nor do I think it is supported, and here's why. Now, if you disagree, that's okay. It's not a doctrinal thing that's going to impact your salvation. It just means you're going to be wrong again. But um, that's okay. God still loves you, just a little less. I'm glad you laughed. But anyway, uh, of course, the love of God is so powerful, uh, you can't diminish that love. Galatians chapter 1, Paul talking about his conversion. He says that I might preach him, that is Christ, among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Well, hopefully we'll open some of this up. But also in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught, taught it, but it came through revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul learned his Christianity directly from Jesus Christ, and it was not instant. It was not imparted to him. He had to work for it. Later, 
in Acts chapter 26, when he's again telling about his conversion, he says that Ananias said to him, but rise and stand on your feet. For I, well, the Lord's speaking to him. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and witness both of the things which you have seen and of those things which I will yet reveal to you. Well, that's already happened, that moment on our timeline here in chapter 9. God has already said these things to, to him. I'm going to reveal these things to you. Well, he goes to Arabia to receive these revelations that Christ had promised him. And so there was likely no one in Damascus who was on Paul's theological level who could help him along with his theology and have him unlearn rabbinical Judaism, which he had to do. And so his departure to the Arabian desert, I place right there where it says, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. In that period, Luke omits this, but again, Paul brings it back in in Galatians and later in, in Acts. And so at that period, and this is not uncommon in Scripture. You have a lot, sometimes you have, you know, several hundred years that separate one sentence from another. This, now, there are others that put this departure in verse 21 and 22. Uh, they're wrong, <laughs> but they could be right. No. Anyway. He continued for a few days after his conversion and baptism and quickly departed for Arabia. And I'll, I'll get back to that as we, as we walk through it. He is going to be discipled directly by Jesus Christ, as were the other apostles. It's sort of like God is saying, I've got to get you away from people at this point. I've got to isolate you to get you to unlearn this rabbinical influence that you've been subject to all your life. And so even at the word of Ananias there in Damascus, saying, the man who came here to prosecute us, who was persecuting the Christians severely in Jerusalem, he got saved on the way here. What do you think that, that, that how that was received? Yeah, right. And it was very unlikely that they would have been so eager to receive it. And even if they did, they would have been very nervous about it. We just had an example of this with the COVID outbreak of how many Christians were unhinged over this event. And so this uh, experience here in Damascus was more, far more severe. We don't know how long he remained in Arabia, but we know that it was three years before he goes back to Jerusalem. So when he gets saved, it's three years since he returns home. I wonder what happened to all of his stuff uh, when, he get, when he gets back. Anyway, I got a, a chart here that I built over the decades, and hopefully it will help. I will not give you the verses because we'll just it takes too much time, but I'll try to give you the chapter uh, where you can go back and find it yourself. It's about three years after the conversion of Christ, uh, the conversion of Christ, the resurrection, ascension of Christ. So it's about 36 A.D. when he was converted here in chapter nine. He departs to Arabia which could be as much as 400 miles away if he goes to Mount Sinai. And he says Mount Sinai is in Arabia. He says that in Galatians chapter 4. He is there taught by God as referenced in Acts 26 and Galatians 1. Then, we haven't gotten there yet this morning, he returns to Damascus and goes right into ministry, having been with the Lord and received the, this discipleship. 
he remains in Damascus for some days, of course, refuting the Jews just like Stephen. And then, when threats are made on his life, he departs Damascus. Uh, he is let down in a basket uh, through a window in the wall. Then he goes back to Jerusalem. First time in three years. He'll be there 15 days, and then he'll leave again, because they're going to try to kill him, and he won't be back to Jerusalem for another 14 years. And in those 14 years of time, he's just spreading Christianity everywhere. And uh, he becomes this tiger of the faith. And when we get to 2 Corinthians of 11, he just says, let me give you a little idea of how I live as a Christian. And when he, he says in that section, when I think about what sin does to believers, do I not burn with indignation? It makes me hot. Not against the Christians that are struggling with sin, but against sin and the curse in this life and the devil and the world. He never lost momentum as a believer. At least we have no record of him ever losing this momentum. Again, you can't say it enough. Truly, if you were to uh, metaphorically assign an animal to the characters of, of the Bible, Saul would be a tiger. Uh, very quickly, he, the man was very fierce. Anyway, he goes back to Jerusalem. Uh, but before, he, when he goes to Jerusalem, he's chased out. He goes to Tarsus. And there he begins to um, preach and set up churches in not only uh, Cilicia, which is in Tarsus, but also Syria. We get that from Acts 15 and Galatians chapter 1. Barnabas, though, he brings him back to Jerusalem. Somewhere between three, ten years later, he brings him back to Jerusalem. Uh, uh, then the two go up to Antioch. They are there for a year. The Holy Spirit will then send Barnabas and uh, Saul to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then they'll end up in, in, well, not together, but Saul will with Silas in Europe. And so that's a brief overview of his life, which is beginning here, his life in Christ. The Damascus conversion, the lessons in Arabia, the preaching back in Damascus, the visit to Jerusalem, the being chased out of Jerusalem, and then the work and ministry in Syria and Cilicia. And if you get nothing else out of all of this, you say, this man, this man is such an example. He was not satisfied with his conversion and redemption. When I say that, I, meant he, I mean that, uh, of course, he's very grateful for it, but there's so much more for him to do. He felt he had to do something with his salvation other than be saved. And so he goes to work in saving others. And we look at verse 20. It says, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. I believe, again, this is upon his return from Arabia. He would have needed that time to put his theology together. Now, theology is not something, your understanding and study of God according to his word is not something that we know of as being imparted. In fact, Paul's going to tell Timothy, don't appoint a beginner to ministry, to pastoral ministry, 1 Timothy 3. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And so as a novice in Christianity, I think we have no reason to think that he just went right to work into ministry. Uh, of course, he was delighted and delighted. 1 Timothy 3, verse 10, he also says, but let these first be tested 
Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So Paul is saying, you've got to filter out people. You just can't get saved and automatically they're ready. Uh, they may be ready to share and witness Christ, but not on a pastoral level. Not on a level of with the assembly to really begin to deal with uh, the stuff that's out there. Uh, the questions that Christians will ask, you know. Uh, you, if sometimes a pastor will say, well, remember Moses' ark. And the congregation will say, you mean Noah's ark? Well, actually, Moses had two arks. There was the ark that he was put in when he sailed on water to Pharaoh's daughter. That was his first ark. And then there was the ark of the covenant. So there, you're wrong, I'm right. And that's, that's na 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 So, again, not content with being an example of the power of Christ's love and conversion. He is going to get into the thick of everything. It says, in the synagogues. Well, to the Jews first. This is a, the, the, the natural, sensible uh, the pattern that God has before us. But partly because there was nowhere else to start. When he gets to Athens, he'll start there and, you know, where, where he can. But the, the synagogue was the platform. Until the ch- Christians were allowed to have church buildings, it, it wasn't as uh, we might be comfortable with today. Synagogues, we're not sure when they came along. They, they did exist in David's day. Psalm 74, verse 8. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. Well, the meeting places are the assembly. The word synagogue means the assembly. And the church, the Christian church, is patterned off of the Jewish synagogue. Not, not identical, but certainly there is that, um, it, that pattern. It says also here in verse 20, That he is the son of God. That's what he was preaching. Now Jewish knowledge of Messiah's identity unfolded before them. It wasn't, again, instance when Christ came. It took a lot for many never just received him. Even with the miracles and the preachings. This knowledge had to be unfolded. As the church, the identity of the church was not instantaneous. It it had to be uh, developed It emerged out of these things. And Paul was the one that led this. The Jews who received were saved, but the others, uh, what they heard about Jesus Christ as being the Messiah, it collapsed under unbelief. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthians, which he was preaching to these Jews in Damascus, in Jerusalem, wherever he went. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And there it is again. He says, I received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We received it from Christ in Arabia, initially. Then he continues, verse 4. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So when he's engaging the Jews in Damascus and in Jerusalem, he's using the scriptures. He said, here it is right here. The identity of our Messiah is Jesus Christ. And we have the same message to this day. A slightly different approach to Gentiles, perhaps. But overall, it is the same. The stages of his conversion were outstanding. And I think it helps to remember that God does not save Jews and Gentiles. He saves sinners. There are no other type of people to be saved. Now, of course, you could drill it down a little bit to make some distinction, but ultimately, it's sinners. And when a Jewish person understands that, 
Then doors begin to open, lights begin to turn on. When a Gentile understands that, same thing. It doesn't have to be different. Uh, you know, there are distinctions that just, uh, they, at some point, they don't, they don't count because the information covers it all. So reviewing the stages of his conversion, he is converted and he is immersed in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Then he was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the work of Jesus Christ. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 8. John speaking, John the baptizer. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one doing the baptizing. The Holy Spirit is the element that is being baptized into the filling of the Spirit. Then that third experience of overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I don't know how to read the parts when we get in the Bible to as the scripture without some animation, without some accent placed on it. I cannot casually say, he who believes in me as the scripture is said. It's the scripture is a big part. It's everything. It's what connects it all together. The signature of God. The voice of God. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that's when Paul was filled. And we're going to get that as we get down to verses 20 and 22 sometime this year. We'll, we'll get to that. But it's what Jesus meant. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power to do what? To be witnesses. To unfold the mystery of the Messiah. Of the prophecies concerning the Son of God. And its relationship to sin, sinful men and women. That's what we have in Acts chapter 1. And to try to say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit's all about me having the gift of tongues or some other uh, manifestation. The manifestation truly is the love of God for sinners. And without that, what are you? You are annoying. And that's what, uh, you know, if I have not love, though I have prophecies, though I give my body to be burned, if I have not love, I am nothing, quote unquote. So it all does fit together. Otherwise, I personally wouldn't accept it. I wouldn't accept the Bible as being the word of God if it didn't fit together. If it was just so fragmented, it made no sense. But I've come to trust it so much that if the Bible said to me, water is not wet, I would believe that water is still wet, but there was a greater meaning to those words because the Bible doesn't get it wrong. The facts are the facts. They're not contrary to logic, to reason, to science. They are trustworthy, but they require work. And they require work some more. Verse 21 now. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on, the name, on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? Well, this was their reaction to, to Paul. It would have been at both times, uh, when, at his conversion early on, and then when he returns from Arabia, it would have still been that way. They would have had no reason to say, oh, okay, we, we trust this guy now. He was Christian enemy number one. 
a hot hater of Christ and his people. Jesus said, I wish you were ice cold or, or, or red hot, but not lukewarm. Well, there was nothing lukewarm about Paul and his view of Christ and Christianity. And so again, I think that he was whisked out of Damascus uh, and onto Arabia and does not preach Christ until spending time with Christ because he would have had so many questions. He would have been speaking and then saying to himself while he's speaking. And that's why when you study before you come up into the pulpit, so you don't have questions. You don't want a question in the pulpit. Hmm, I wonder what that means. Hold on a second. Uh, you want to settle these things as best you can. In fact, you want to exhaust them. Uh, and uh, I, I strongly, uh, I believe that is uh, the way it is, the pattern that we have. Verse 22 but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And so now he's back um, uh, with a developed theology. Not only was this man willing to study, he was willing to suffer. A lot of people are willing to give you Bible studies. They know so much. But they're just not willing to get in the trenches and suffer. They're not willing. There are a great many great Christians that do a lot of great things in the church. And I don't mean, you know, like going off to the mission field and getting this name for themselves, which is wonderful. But I mean just in the church. Just the people that come in and clean the church, for example. These are, are, are special things. Because take them away and you notice very quickly that something's not right. That there's a bless, blessing, if not blessings, missing. Christians count. But it only takes one or two to mess up the whole thing and make you not want to serve anymore. Well, you've got to overcome that. It's got to be more than study. You've got to suffer. You've got to take the pain. And uh, this Paul, willing to study, willing to suffer, then distilling the Old Testament into the New. Do you know how big a work that is? It's still difficult. To take the Old Testament to a Jewish person that knows nothing about Jesus Christ as Messiah or is hostile towards him. And then to open up his scripture and say, let me show you with any degree of success. This is a fantastic experience. It says here in verse 22, he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus. Well, Stephen did that to the Jews that dwelt in uh, Jerusalem. A saved Jew demonstrating that the deep-seated, flawed, rabbinical teachings and traditions have been overruled by God. In other words, they overruled God. They latched onto their traditions. They took the Old Testament and they sort of just filtered out the meat and they, they went on with other things that were secondary. In fact, Jesus at one point said, these things you should have done without leaving the others undone to the Pharisees. You should have been able to keep your ritual, but you should have kept God first. And to those of you, you teens and you young adults, you, 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 you're working out your life and charting your course, and you should do that. You're going to college or school, and you, get, you want to get high grades, as a Christian especially, as high as you can get them. But you also want to keep up your devotions to God. These things you should do without leaving the others undone. You are expected to do more because you can do more. That's why. Or would you prefer we treat you as, you know, stupid clods? 
Would you prefer that? Oh, you can't do it. Don't worry about it. You just don't have it. No, it's the other way around. You do have it. And and we're going to squeeze it out of you if we can. Just don't try to do it to me. I paid my dues. And kidding. It says here in our New Testament about what the Jewish people were doing with their Bibles. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders who were the rabbinical influences, the teachers that were influencing theology. He says, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? This is what Paul had to, had to get rid of in, in those who came to Christ. So when he goes with Silas, who is a Jew, and Barnabas, who was a Jew, these men put God first, not their religion. And then Christ continues, Matthew fifteen six. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And then Matthew 15, 9. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's quoting Isaiah the prophet at that point. So, when he goes and he confounds the Jews, he's telling them, your traditions are nothing without the Christ. He's fulfilled these things. He is everything. And then he'd go to Isaiah or Psalm 22 and he'd point out, the sufferings of Jesus, that the Messiah had to come to suffer for sinners. And this is the love of God, according to the scriptures. And so it says here in verse 22, proving that this Jesus is Messiah. We were just singing, Jesus Messiah. And because, well, it's born out of what's happening in the Bible. It takes, it takes work to identify, to even know who you are let alone know who someone else is and someone on the level of Messiah. They had God's scripture. It should have been a logical fit. It was for some. It wasn't for Paul until God got hold of him. We have to remember that when we share the gospel and people aren't saying, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, sign me up. We have to remember this is a spiritual fit. Logic is not uh, the bigger part of it. It is a part of it, but not all of it. Jews who submitted to the scripture over the rituals and the tradition and the prejudices were saved. If they chose not to believe Christ, it would be in spite of the evidence, in spite of logic. If they rejected Jesus, it was because they didn't want him to be the Messiah. They didn't like his style. It was not intellectual. It was more than that. They did not care for him rebuking their traditions. They did not care for Jesus not bowing down to them. He's a respecter of no persons. They didn't care for that. In other words, you come up to Christ and say, well, I'm a Pharisee. And so what? <laughs> what do you, well, you might not have said it like that. I would have if I could have. But he might have said it like that. It's just like, so I don't care about your credentials. What do you do with Christ? What do you do with God? What are you doing with his son? And that is the same today. So they made up their minds, those who rejected, that their traditions and values were superior to the cross of Christ and the grace of Jesus. And that's why it was such a fight. You say, how much of a fight? Well, they wanted to kill him in Damascus. They wanted to kill him in Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him everywhere they could. And he suffered it. I can't wait till we get to the part where they chase him out of Jerusalem and, and, and James was happy to see him go. See you, Paul. Nice. Glad you're saved. Uh, anyway, we'll get to that. Verse 23. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Three years from his conversion at this point, 
again, we have to, you know, you, you put this, you just detective work. You can take the scripture verses and you line them up and you, the, the puzzle fits. You, you run with it. And during those years, of course, he, he's, he's unstoppable. And at this point in his faith, he's back. It says the Jews plotted to kill him, not the ones that were being converted or the ones already Christians. Religious hatred mixed with this twisted sense of loyalty to Judaism, but not to the scripture. That's where they turned, that's where they went wrong. You couldn't speak bad of Moses, but you could ignore him. Well, they had the Old Testament, enough of it to be dangerous. And some people today have enough of the New Testament to be dangerous. They just don't come to the right conclusion. But they can sure use it to twist the truth. And Peter warned, he said, there are those that take Paul's words and they twist them to their own harm. So during those, during those years in Arabia, under the instruction of the Lord, he's back. He's doing something with what he learned and it's costing him. Uh, you know, they were like sore losers. They lacked, you know, imagine a team, they, they lacked the skills. They lacked, and so they started turning to dirty tactics and cheating to make up for the lack of skill. Well, they couldn't refute Paul with the truth, so let's just kill him. And, of course, we're seeing that today. Well, they got the Ten Commandments out of the schools and courthouses. And they then evolved to where they would attack children for wearing, you know, Make America Great hats. You couldn't do that with this, this type. So they're still here because Satan, he is dedicated to finding humans who will silence truth or do good that will connect to the truth of God. He is devoted. And we are supposed to stand in the gap and resist this as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Many of these people that are joining these idiotic movements, and they are idiotic not to be... Uh, taking a cheap shot, but just by the pure definition of the word. You look at what they stand for, and you say, it doesn't make any sense. In fact, not only does it not make sense, it's counter. It's counterwise. It's dangerous. It is deadly what they want to do uh, sexually, like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, smitten with blindness and still at it. That's demonic. The right they want to stop anyone from disagreeing with them. We have the right to dissent in this country. And they want to take that away. We have the right to free access. They want to take that away. That means free access. I can go to any place, you know, legitimately. If I want to go into a store, no one should block me because they're protesting what I believe. But uh, the devil, again, he is, he is doing it. And America is a choice target because the church historically has been sh very strong in America uh, for a long time. It was very strong in England and they chased the Puritans out. Uh, so anyway, coming... Back to this, we must do what we do, and that is be the salt and the light. Uh, verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. They put shifts on. They wanted this guy so bad. Okay, you watch, and then I'll come back and check, and we'll get Rollo to come and help you, and then Pepe Le Pew will be his turn, and we're going to get this guy. We hate him. How dare he say the Messiah has come? Well, I mean, wasn't the Messiah supposed to come? Yeah, but he was supposed to honor us. Well, that's upside down. Uh, they didn't care. They liked it. Anyway, there was no way they could kill this man. God had promised that he would preach to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to Caesar and kings and themselves. And they watched the gates of the city 
night and day to kill, to kill him. Hatred fueled, uh, their, fueled their determination, and uh, this will be the first of many attempts. How many times has someone tried to kill you? Now, maybe there's someone here that was, can say, well, at least one. Uh, not barring those who've been into war, that's those, those different terms. But just someone hating what you believe so much they tried to kill you and happen, have it happen again and again. I think m- many people would, you know, John Mark, he found out how bad the mission field was. He wanted no more part of it, and he went back to Jerusalem. But thank God he was put back in the fight. Well, here was Saul. Uh, they tried to kill him. It, it didn't deter him at all. He had no plan of, well, I, you know what, I, I probably need to find another profession. Verse 25, then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Yeah, how humiliating, sitting there, <laughs> sitting there like a lump of laundry being let down out of a wall. But this is what it took, helping Saul put them at risk. They had to still live in that city. Paul tells us it was a window. They didn't, it wasn't a, a, a cavity in the wall. Second Corinthians 11, he talks about this moment. In Damascus, the governor under Aratus, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison desiring to arrest me. That's a pretty large force. And he continues, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So sort of like Joshua's, the spies that Joshua sent in and Rahab letting them down. Uh, also David escaping Saul's henchmen being let out of a window. So they probably thought about these things. Um, The Adventures of Evangelism. Uh, We could have named that uh, uh, this morning's sermon, but it wouldn't have been enough. Again, this is a tiger in the basket from hell's perspective. He's going to do so much damage to the causes of hell that makes me say, well, I can't do what Saul did. Let me grow up and understand that. But I can still do a lot. And that's true of every Christian. Every Christian is basically to be an evangelist. One of the first indications that you are saved is you want to tell somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ that they need to believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So we're three years later now. And this is still going on. So he goes to Arabia, he comes back, they still don't believe him. He goes, comes back to Jerusalem, they don't believe him. Jerusalem still is the one that kills the prophets and those who are sent to her. Now he's trying to join the church, not the leadership. And that's so humble of the man. He's not going up, oh, Sean, take me to the big, big shots. He's not doing that. He just wants to go into church with these people. And they're like, yeah, right. So it says, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Understandably, many of these people were traumatized by what he had accomplished three years earlier. They knew people, may have been some of them, family members even. It was a vicious behavior that he unleashed on them. Imagine if somebody like, now we'll have to go ahead and probably sanitize the pulpit after this, but imagine if George Soros became a Christian. Would you believe it? If he walked in, I just gave my life to Christ. What, what would you do? Um, you know, I'd say something like, well, listen, as a Christian, you're not going to need all that money. Why don't you give it to me? <laughs> no, okay, I wouldn't do that. But, I mean, there are people that are just so reprehensible. 
their conversion is just, you would be, you know, maybe a gullible Christian would say yes to anybody, you know, okay. Uh, any, but uh, anyhow, trying to get you there, I'll move on. Proof that he did not spend a lot of time in Damascus, is it not? Because if he spent a lot of time in Damascus preaching Christ, the word would have gotten back to Jerusalem. But because he didn't spend a lot of time there, the word did not make it back to Jerusalem. The only people the church should disfellowship are those who start trouble in the church. Regardless of what church. I mean, if it's a church that, if you don't agree with it, you can't change it from the top. I mean, from the bottom, pardon me. You just can't. So the Bible tells us what to do with this. Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, Paul is writing this. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. 1 Corinthians 5.13, and there are more, but this is sufficient. Not a very pleasant fact, but it's a fact. He says, put away from yourself the evil person. Well, so, but Paul wasn't evil, and he wasn't causing divisions. He's trying to become, you know, just go to church with these people and they don't have it, want any part of it. So he returns to Jerusalem after becoming a Christian, and his situation is desperate. His former friends hated him as a turncoat. His Christian brothers feared him as a fraud. Where does he go from there? Well, verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them, how he had seen the Lord on the road, that is Paul, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas is connected. He just, he just knows people and things. And, and then he is, you know, there's such a profound, but Barnabas, well, put you in the workplace, the school, wherever you are, and everybody's doing everything contrary to Christ but you. But you and more. But you say something. But you lead somebody to Christ. But you minister the gospel. The gift of encouragement involves more than happy words. Oh, it's going to be all right. Oh, sometimes it's not the thing to say. You wouldn't say to the Lord while he's on the cross, oh, it's going to be all right. I mean, ultimately it would be. But not in a flippant kind of way. You wouldn't, you know, you've got to, you, to have the gift of encouragement you must also have discernment and courage and action. And probably other things too, but that's enough to start with. It's not enough to just be the person that tells people it's going to be all right. Peter was able to discern Ananias and Sapphira were lying to the Holy Spirit. He was able to discern that Simon Magnus was up to no good. But was he able to tell that Saul's conversion was genuine. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he was just busy with other things. Or maybe he missed it. If he missed it, there's a lesson there for us to be on guard against getting things wrong. A show of hands. Who likes to get things wrong? Exactly. And if you want to get things right, you've got to earn it. You've got to work for it. One way to start is to keep your mouth closed when you don't know, when you don't know right? Uh, rather than try to fake it. Well, anyway, and how he preached boldly at Damascus, uh, coming to verse 29, 28 now. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. So now, because of Barnabas, he's in the church. 
because of this friend, this man named Barnabas. Verse 29, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. So there he is at it again, taking all his knowledge and doing something with it. He's using the truth to anger them. He's speaking clearly. And of course, he's passionate. Those three things. You don't want to fragment those. You don't want to, have, you know, it was passionate, but it wasn't true. It was true, but it wasn't clear. You would like to have all three when we share the gospel. And you don't have to be a super scholar to share the gospel. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And you can't do that if everyone has to be, you know, go off and, and get some credential to do that. All you have to do is have the love of God and the truth of the word. And so again, knowing a fact doesn't mean that we're guaranteed to do the right thing with the fact. And Paul is doing the right thing. He says, and disputed against the Hellenists, these are the Jews of the Grecian culture, the same group that Stephen debated and defeated, and now Saul is doing it. But they attempted to kill him. Um, he wasn't there but 15 days. <laughs> That's how long he was in Jerusalem. That's how long it took him to make people want to kill him. <laughs> well, if people are going to want to kill you, make sure it's because you didn't do something wrong, <laughs> but you did something right. So the former perse uh, persecutor is now the prosecuted preaching Christ. I mean, led, led into Damascus by hand and then eventually led out in a basket. He's willing to do these things because to him, the gospel is worth it. And as a Christian, we can become so occupied with our struggles, with our joy or lack of joy, that we're no longer looking to save, looking to preach to people, because we're too tied up with uh, the leak in our boat. And Christ says, listen, you've got to learn how to bail water and sail at the same time. Verse 30, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Yeah, life, right? <laughs> Just life. I just got into the church. It was, I was loving it. I was shooting these guys down. And now I got to leave. So three years ago, they feared for their lives because of this man. Now they fear for this man's life. What? You just now know what God is going to do. And I don't mean it in a negative way, because you can say that. And who knows with God? You can do anything. Mess it all up. <laughs> you can have that attitude. Or you can say, as those in, in Nineveh, with God, who can tell? There's, there's opportunity there. As I mentioned, he'll be gone from, for 14 years, Galatians 2.1. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Um, well, we have to skip that because of time, but I do want to comment on this. James, the brother of the Lord, and Paul, they both love the same Lord. But they're the only two men that I can think of in the New Testament that gave their lives to Christ after the resurrection through Christ himself. Because James, the brother of the Lord, was not a believer until after the resurrection, and Paul too. But James was not as determined to see Judaism replaced as Paul. James may have had a 200-year plan. Paul had like a 200-minute plan. <laughs> it's like you got 200 minutes to fix this. And so, again, the determination in, in Paul to make this line clear, we're not, Ju it's not Judaism. It's not reconcilable. James had a different approach. Uh, and so the two were always uneasy with themselves. So when, uh, when Paul comes back, 
at another time, James says, listen, go down to the temple. Why? The temple is useless at this point. It's obsolete. Why am I going to the temple and pay the vows for these men? Well, God intercepted that, didn't let it happen. And Paul got arrested. Thanks, James. So, uh, and you say, well, you're bad-mouthing. I'm telling you the truth. It's not about bad-mouthing. It, it tells you how difficult, how deeply rooted Judaism was inside of human beings because this is how we are built. And James will be in heaven. And, uh, but it's a fact. He, he struggled with things, and maybe you do too. Maybe you come out of uh, Roman Catholicism or the Jehovah's you know, Kingdom Hall or a Mormon. You got clutter. And some can, can jettison it quite quickly. Others struggle with it. Um, and, and then they make us struggle with them. <laughs> Trying to be patient. I thought I told you. <laughs> Verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now, I don't think Luke is putting this here to, to say, when they got rid of Paul, everybody had peace. That is not what is going on. The church really did not go beyond Samaria until Saul drove it beyond Samaria after Stephen started the whole thing. <laughs> Just like the Mordecai. Mordecai almost got the Jews wiped out, but God said, no, I need to bring this to the surface, and Mordecai, you're going to do it. I'm going to give you a spirit of intolerance for this Haman and his stuff. Anyway, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, and that persecution started by Saul, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word, but, no one, but to no one but Jews only. So the church... Their early church, still, they don't know how to invite the Gentiles in because their identity is still being shaped. They're not yet sure how much of Judaism they're going to keep and, and their customs and their, just the, their mentality. And it's not an insult. The Bible is real. It doesn't, it doesn't try to, okay, there's magic land over here. And it doesn't do this with us. You have to factor in what sin has done to human beings and you can't take it out. And that's why Paul will write to the Colossians and say, these things are useless against the indulgences of the flesh. All of this ritual and stuff you have. Anyway, let's finish this up. Uh, so, it says that they had peace. Well, the peace was more of a political peace. Not so much because they got Saul out of there. The solution to that was they were just going to kill him. But Rome had appointed at this time under Caligula, the emperor, the Caesar of, of Rome, uh, this plan, and they were using a, a large army to enforce this. They wanted to erect a statue of Caligula in the Jewish temple, which would have just brought a war. Well, Caligula dies before that happens, but at the time, when he's still alive, that diverted much of the attention of the Jews to this program now. And uh, the historians tell us that you know, just hundreds of thousands of Jews are just pr protesting this throughout the land. So this is really why I think they, they had peace at this time is because uh, the anger was redirected. He did this in 3940 A.D. After, after Christ, which fits the timeline perfectly for Christ, uh, for, for Saul 
being saved three years after, three years away, and then back to Jerusalem. It's, it's a perfect fit. Anyway, and that's how we come to these you know, numbers. And then there are lessons within this. And then there are applications to our lives. Uh, I mean, here's this man going to be the great apostle. But when he's off in Cilicia and, and Tarsus and, and Syria, he's just an average pastor. And he doesn't have a clue that God is going to, how God is going to use him. And he will be the aged and the great apostle Paul. Uh, anyway, without even trying, just doing what he does. It says, and they were edified. Well, new converts that came into Christianity would come in knowing that they were in a faith that is subject to severe persecution. So it wasn't like they were coming into, most of us, when we get saved, it's just like, hey, we're in America, we're free, you know, and we can do this. But they were committing to a religion where their own countrymen were uh, apt to get them. And walking in the fear of the Lord, it says here at the bottom of verse 31, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Well, the comfort there, the word comfort in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, parakletos, is, and it's the Holy Spirit, and that's what he does. He brings comfort. God is helping. That's the idea. John 14, verse 16, Jesus speaking, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you Forever. Oh, man, can you not love that? You mean if I goof up? Well, uh, you know, um, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. Well, how are you going to do that? By being God. That's how God, by the cross of Christ, that's how God presents us faultless into heaven. Uh, I don't know how that whole beam of seats going to work out in all of its detail, but I sort of going to approach my plan is to just shut my mouth and be kind of secure. I'm saved. <laughs> I'm good. Okay, if I don't get the mansion that guy's got, that's fine. I'll just, you know, steal it later. Anyway, coming back to this, finishing up with this. This fear, where it says, walking in the fear of the Lord. Take the fear of God out of the lives of men and women, and what are you left with? Well, we call it liberalism. There's no fear. They think they can do anything. There's no concept of decency. To them, indecency is decency. It's not new. Isaiah said it long ago. They call good evil and evil good. They're upside down. And they have no fear of God. And as we go through the kings and we see the idolatry, they don't fear Yahweh. And it's true. To fear and not be afraid, this is the paradox of our faith. We're not terrified. This is not a terrifying fear. This is a reverence. This is an understanding. There is fear in it. I fear going to hell. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I fear sticking a screwdriver all the way in my ear. There's a lot of things I fear. I don't go around doing them. <laughs> all right. I'm a little late, but before I close, I have to retell this story. There was a little boy. He lives out not far from here. And he's probably a teenager now. He had rocks packed in his ear. And they had to take him to the doctor to get the rocks out. True story. And, and they, they said, why did you pack the rocks in your ear? Because the girls kept on singing <laughs> that song uh, from Frozen. What is it? Let it go. <laughs> the girls kept singing it over and over. He's back. 
I want to give that kid a medal and, you know, like coupons to, you know, Burger King or something. Like, man, you're my hero. Anyway, there's no distinction between male and female. Anyway, we're going to pray. We're going to pray and thank the Lord. I since then carry a few rocks in my pocket wherever I go. Father, thank you for the humor. Thank you for people intelligent enough to know when it's just levity and, and there's no harm intended. We love you. We love the heaven you have ready for us. We can't wait to see it, and yet we must. And while we wait, we're to do business until you come. We're to be this occupying force of light and salt. And may we do it with love, with endurance. Regardless of how many years we've been serving and struggling, may we not lose our edge. If you've been listening this morning, and you've been hearing about Christianity being preached, and at the same time you feel God convicting you that you're not right with him because you've not opened your heart to Christ. If you'd like to open your heart to Jesus Christ, you can do it right now. You're not promised another chance. And if you die... If you die without Christ, that is a, a great tragedy. To die with that question mark over your, your eternal existence. Because death is not the end. It's a continuation. If you'd like to give your life to Christ because you know that he is God the Son, then make this prayer with me in earnest and he will receive you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I break your commandments. I do wrong to myself, to others. I do wrong. And I, I ask you to pardon me. I ask you to forgive me that I would not be punished for this when I stand before you. I admit my sin. I've broken your law. And I ask you to forgive me to be my Savior and the Lord over my life from this day forward. That I would belong to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning... May they act upon it. May they step forward and make their confession known. May they not be ashamed to say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.